Magnus Podcast, Episode 1, The Liberal Arts. Do it. So welcome everybody to the inaugural episode of the Magnus Podcast. This is a show that is really dedicated to the honor of our namesake, St. Albert the Great, Albertus Magnus, who was in many ways a Renaissance man before the Renaissance. And the program of learning to which he subscribed and to which we intend to promote with this podcast is really holistic, human and truly liberating. We call it the liberal arts education. And in many ways, modern man has lost sight of what that is. And so hopefully this podcast serves as something uh, of a revival to that tradition. And uh, in in doing so, we're going to be trying to sit down with the greatest minds living today on the subject of liberal arts, the classics, Uh, And we start with Stephen Courtright. Stephen Courtright is a living legend. He's been a professor of the great books for over 40 years at St. Mary's College. He did his graduate studies at the University of Notre Dame. And his lecture today is called The Liberal Arts, Leisure, and Divine Worship. And it's one of the first of a three-part series on what exactly it is to educate Liberally, And we'll find really quickly that uh, it's not what you might think. And I want to warn you that this lecture is a lot like drinking from a fire hose, especially at first. There is a whole lot that Professor Courtright is giving. And uh, this might be something you have to listen to one or two times, but that's great. And just remember, in many ways, this is like learning a new language. So to the extent that you can hang in there and make it through Uh, you're going to find some very, very helpful nuggets in this lecture. I should note here that while Professor Courtright is reading us an essay that he has never publicized or given before in any way, he is not doing so rotely. Uh, In fact, at many times throughout the lecture, you might hear him tear up uh, just a little bit, uh, by which I was moved. And so uh, this is coming from his heart and really, in many ways, is a synthesis of his life's work. All right, without further ado, here is Professor Stephen Courtright on the liberal arts, leisure, and divine worship. All right. The title of this lecture is Liberal Arts, Leisure, and Divine Worship. The present-day academy extols the liberal arts, but uses the term liberal arts as if it were a mere label. Academic usage extends the term to any discipline of a theoretical cast, that is, to all but professional studies on one side and applied or technical subjects on the other. On the one hand, if it is an art, medicine, for example, is not a liberal art, and on the other, neither is computer programming or civil engineering. But any discipline in the middle of these extremes may be called liberal. And academic praise of the liberal arts, or alternatively, of liberal education, regularly characterizes their value in terms of use. Under the banner, What is Liberal Arts Education?, Harvard University's undergraduate website cites the social sciences, the natural sciences, and the humanities. How one might wonder... Does the notion of art, let alone liberal art, come to embrace sciences, social and natural, and the sciences' recognized antitheses, the unmathematical, non-factual, opinion-ridden humanities? Because this brief disquisition suggests, individually and altogether, the sciences and humanities promote skills important to any endeavor, namely, wait for it, to read, write, and think critically. Princeton advises potential undergraduates in the same fashion. Quote, by exploring issues, ideas, and methods across the humanities and natural and social sciences, again, that's a liberal education, an expansive intellectual grounding, you will learn to read critically, write cogently, and think broadly. 
And again, this education is an instrumental good. It stands, quote, to cultivate the tools necessary to allow you to navigate the world's most complex issues. It is a preparation, quote, for positions of leadership and a life of service to the nation and all of humanity. Princeton and Harvard embrace research establishments. Perhaps things are different in the liberal arts colleges. The nationally celebrated liberal arts college, Swarthmore, sings, however, from the same score. Quote, Spanning every discipline of knowledge and thought, the liberal arts are the perfect education for the intellectually curious, giving them the best possible grounding, no matter what they want to do. By teaching students how to learn, a Swarthmore liberal education gives students lifelong professional flexibility. These hymns to the liberal arts are as striking for the paucity of light they cast on the question, what is liberal arts education, as they are for the disparity between the liberal arts' immediate or proximate ends on the one hand and the effects that are said to follow from and justify or recommend their pursuit. Although the arts span every sort of theoretical inquiry, scientific or humanistic, the marks of the liberal artist as such go to cogent reading, writing, and thinking. These constitute, it would seem, the heart of knowing how to learn. By contrast, the liberal artist unleashed wields what is important to any endeavor, according to Harvard, navigates the world's most complex issues, and claims therewith positions of leadership, Princeton. And these liberal artists are well-grounded, indeed omnicompetent, for whatever they may wish to undertake, but always with professional flexibility, from Swarthmore. Perhaps we can agree. If the question is, what is a profession? The answer in the form of a list, well, medicine, the law, perhaps accountancy, is miserably inadequate. A profession is shorthand for human skill equally apt to work good or harm, and so guided by the profession, the profession of an oath against all harmful uses. The Hippocratic Oath, the American Bar Association Code of Professional Ethics, the professional standards enjoined upon CPA licensees in all 50 states, and so on. Similarly, when the question is, what is liberal arts education? A list of curricula devoid of reference to the signal terms liberal and art, or a set of claimed benefits likewise innocent of reference to liberal or art, is miserably, in fact, embarrassingly inadequate. But now I need to say a word about the reduction of liberal arts to uses, epitomized by the claim that a liberal arts education consists in a kind of generic preparation for all manner of social utilities. It is easy to overlook the fact that the earnest politician or industrialist or education bureaucrat who urges the prospective leaders of tomorrow, known to you and I as students, to esteem their education primarily in the light of their anticipated future accomplishments, is making an unconditional demand upon them and upon the academy. A summons to conscription is the obverse of this glad-handing rhetoric, and implied in both the demand and the summons is an image of the academy as the manufactory of a special sort of commodity, the human resource, a thing fit and measured for use. A close analysis of this attitude's sources would stray far beyond the bounds of the present lecture. Its influence, however, is a matter of immediate interest, and of it one can take a rough measure in the following observation. To our figurative politician, industrialist, and bureaucrat, and to the great majority of students, sadly, Goethe's avowal will seem frivolous, if not positively immoral. He is recorded to have said, I have never bothered or asked in what way I was useful. <clears throat> Try that again. I have never bothered or asked in what way I was useful to society as a whole. I contented myself with expressing what I recognized as good and true. For most undergraduates, of course, the question of their future social utility is no moot question. It is rather the question, a question which often produces appalling anxieties. Undergraduates are viscerally aware that society at large praises a Goethe pro forma, but values a functionary, lauds the poet, but pays the dentist. 
For these students, education is above all a defense against the descent into social inutility. From their position, it is a short step. Rather, it is not a step. It is a minor adjustment in posture to a view which, building upon the disposition to regard properly academic life under the category of intellectual labor, reduces intellectual labor further to a prefigure of work life or career. These, <clears throat> to the extent that the academy at large still resists, but feebly, feebly, this final reduction, it is usually content to respond in effect with the latter half of Goethe's avowal, and indeed the quotations from our friends at Harvard, Swarthmore, and Princeton respond in this fashion. That certainly has been useful in a wide circle, says Goethe, but that was not the aim, it was the necessary result. And they stress the first clause to the neglect of the second and third, as if Goethe were rejecting the utilitarian ethic the better to accede to it in a higher form. We meet regularly with that apology for liberal education which locates its value in Goethe's necessary, that is to say, unintended result. Thus the study of the arts is justified, as we have seen, as a kind of training by indirection. Although aimed at no specific occupation, liberal studies repay the student through the acquisition of transvocational skills as the preparation not for a job but for a rich and varied career. In another variation of the theme, the study of the arts is justified as the forging ground of attainments more grandly but no less extrinsically defined. Preparation of citizens for the challenges of the 21st century, or perhaps the 22nd, or development of democratic humanity. These latter and like views are not utilitarian merely by dint of proposing that the achievement of ulterior ends can justify the academic enterprise. Like ethical utilitarianism, they depend upon the derivation of imperatives or prescriptions from some privileged fact or facts. Moreover, in the special case of education, the privileged fact is often of a rather peculiar sort, the future indicative, or if you will, the future predictive. Typically, the utilitarian account of the aims of education, liberal and otherwise, presupposes the future indicative truth of a purportedly empirical proposition in form, at the future time t, condition c must be the case. Thus, for example, within the next generation, white European values will cease to predominate in the cultural life of these United States. From such future indicative propositions, expressing privileged facts to be, or at best facts in the making, utilitarians derive educational imperatives, for example, to the effect that students must or should be instructed in non-European cultural values. Now, it is legitimate to inquire what privileges the facts adduced to support utilitarian prescriptions, and how is it proposed to derive these prescriptions from the adduced facts? The most straightforward answer to both questions comes by way of a kind of operative definition. Thus, to educate means to prepare students for, to make them equal to, whatever future tasks they may propose for themselves by way of vocation or profession, and whatever future tasks can be reasonably foreseen for them as responsible citizens and autonomous agents. Now, instruction in the discrete academic disciplines usually involves some attention to anticipating future trends in the field and to assessing recent developments in the field. These are necessary exercises if students are to be made equal to the pursuit of their discipline as they will find it practiced in the intellectual community at large. Given the wider goals of liberal education, educators are no less obligated to make students, so far as possible, equal to the socio-cultural milieu in which they will exercise their vocations or professions. Reasonable foresight is the guide. If, for example, an emerging cultural pluralism colors the present and bids to shape the future, to deny students instruction designed to equalize them both to the present trend and to its probable upshot would be to fail, by definition, to educate. The view is not, then, that privileged facts somehow generate educational imperatives independently, as it were imposing upon an educational status quo ante. Rather, to educate just is to recognize in foreseeable future conditions a structure of obligation to students on the part of educators and for students on their own part. Of course, there is much to question in the foregoing account. Does the definition really define? 
Can there be as many potentially conflicting educational imperatives as there are mutually inconsistent visions of the future's preferable shape? Suppose, per impossibile, it were an indisputable fact that the dire predictions of some thinkers with a serious claim upon our attention must be realized, that, under the twin pressures of rising population and dwindling resources, the politics of the foreseeable future must be the politics of authoritarian regimes dedicated solely to management by coercion of chronic social crises. Would it follow that educators have a positive obligation to prepare students for successful, whatever that could mean, life under those conditions? For resistance to them? For any determinate relation to them, apart from understanding their sources? And if the obligation were to run either toward preparation for conformity or toward preparation for resistance, whence the implicit distinction between futures for and futures against which educators are obligated to prepare their students. Are we to conclude that the future indicative fact does, after all, generate the imperative of itself, so that some would be intrinsically prescriptive and some intrinsically proscriptive? If so, then both of our original questions are reopened. These and their like are not negligible difficulties. However, even if the utilitarian view of liberal education were proof against them all, one still might wonder just what is contained in the notion that education consists in making students equal to, or prepared, or ready for, future tasks and future circumstances. One is said to be equal to one's tasks, circumstances, or station if one's capacities for thought and action are conformed, adequated to them. Hence, there is a perfectly ordinary sense in which we are wont to say, so-and-so has become a real lawyer or physician, or engineer. He or she thinks and acts like one. Such expressions testify to our recognition that someone has come to think and act in ways which reflect, and thus, in a sense, are prescribed by his or her day-to-day -day vocation. Analogously, a soldier's training under a doctrine of field operations may be said to make him equal to the conditions of battle envisioned by the doctrine. In this latter case, the field doctrine the future indicative count of the battlefield conditions the soldier is expected to encounter, regulates the character of the soldier's training. In the former case, an overall continuity of, continuity of practice in the legal or medical or engineering professions justifies the expectation that future conduct should closely resemble conduct in the past. In both cases, then, to be equal to means to think and behave conformably with, or to fit or fill a station. Now, if this account adequately addresses the notion of preparation which informs the utilitarian view, then the latter would really seem to make liberal learning indistinguishable from apprenticeship in an academic or professional discipline, coupled with a measure of, broadly speaking, social indoctrination. If the foregoing account is adequate, then it will fall to the advocate of the utilitarian view to describe a sense of intellectual preparation which is regulated neither by the content of a professional or academic discipline, nor by a set of future-oriented civil-social desiderata. Otherwise, the utilitarian should frankly avow that his position makes so-called liberal learning into higher-order training. Of course, the required sort of descriptions abound, but they are not such as to give much comfort to utilitarian sensibilities. One such is Plato's description of philosophy as preparation for death. Another, Aristotle's description of the sources of contemplative life. Indeed, as my late colleague Joseph Lanigan has reminded us, such a description is implied in any view of education, which entertains, quote, the possibility of liberal knowledge, knowledge for its own sake, in freedom from dominion by needs or, one might add, from arbitrary obligations imposed under an ideology of the future. And yet, not so. Not so, someone of the Harvard or Princeton or Swarthmore persuasion might rejoin. Liberal arts is a term that has outlived its original meaning, which was, after all, an historical meaning, attached to a certain era and a certain social function, now passed away. Only the term remains still serving to highlight just what we claim, the studies that inculcate skills necessary to conduct intellectual inquiry well. To demand anything like a definition of liberal arts education now smacks of mere nostalgia. 
so also does the view that the traditional roster of the liberal arts, the trivium or threefold way, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and the quadrivium or fourfold way, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, music, ought to be somehow embodied in present-day curricula. But the scope of learning is not what it was. Neither is the life of cultivated persons. The story behind this criticism might go something like this. In their original meaning, the liberal arts were those which sustained the free person, or which were worthy of a free person. This was a social as much as an intellectual distinction. It was social because the liberal arts were regarded as leisurely in the basic meaning of that term. That is, the liberal arts existed for their own sake, for their intrinsic rather than their instrumental satisfactions. This has a social connotation because it describes the sort of life appropriate to a gentleman or a lady, that is, to persons defined by who they are rather than by what they do. Thus, the liberal arts sustained habits of mind which are essentially self-referential and which had a bias against the vocational in a narrow sense. The liberal arts had to do with being more than with doing. It was probably this aristocratic bias of the liberal arts that President Eliot of Harvard had in mind when he asserted more than a century ago that the best sort of education for a Harvard man was perfectly useless. In the story, the liberal arts are characterized three ways. First, as arts which sustained the free person or which were worthy of a free person. Second, as arts which existed for their own sake, for their intrinsic rather than their instrumental satisfaction. And third, as arts which had to do with being more than with doing. Now, the second and third seem to be explications of the first. But upon reflection, both of them themselves appear problematic. So let us take them in reverse order. In regard to the third, namely, <clears throat> excuse me, arts which had to do with being more than with doing, the term art means nothing if its meaning does not involve action or production. Art terminates in an action or an artifact. No one could be said to have an art who had never acted or produced artistically. Thus, whether considered objectually in terms of its ends or as a human capacity, art is essentially concerned with doing or making. Of course, in a greater or lesser degree, the liberal arts are, so to speak, intransitive. They involve productions, but productions which are realized wholly in the mind and which are, in the language of the medievals, beings of reason. The liberal arts are, quote, those steady and right shapings of works achieved by the mind within itself as triangles or syllogisms, which are known in being made and made in being known. The quotation again is from my late and beloved colleague, Joseph Lanigan. Hence, if doing means transitive action or production exclusively, then the liberal arts might be described as the modes of the reason's self-possession, and thus as a way of being rather than of doing. Something on this order is perhaps in view in the story when it says, the liberal arts sustained habits of mind which are essentially self-referential. Nevertheless, the main thrust of that account goes in a contrary direction, when it refers the sense of being, as opposed to doing, proper to the liberal arts, to persons defined by who they are, rather than by what they do. If accomplished liberal artists are something special, that something resolves into a capacity to produce intelligible objects, syllogisms, geometric figures, melodies, and so on, while accounting for those objects' properties, a capacity which develops only through steady and right shapings of works. Thus, there seems to be no sense in which the liberal arts as arts are concerned more with being than with doing. In regard to the second point, some, at least, of the traditional liberal arts are plainly instrumental. No one would study grammar looking for intrinsic satisfactions, because grammar simply does not offer intrinsic satisfactions. There is no point to grammatical speech if there is nothing outside the categories of grammar to talk about. Perhaps the case stands otherwise with so-called pure mathematics or with logic, since these, unlike grammar, are sciences as well as arts. Having constructed a geometrical figure, 
one can proceed to demonstrate its properties, sometimes making discoveries along the way, and it is possible to construct a syllogism demonstrating that no invalid syllogism can be sound. The thorough exploration of a work of mathematical or logical construction may be intrinsically satisfying because the work has a cognitive dimension in its own right. Thus, the argument we had thought invalid proves upon analysis to conclude, or, contrary to intuition, the asymptote is proved to approach the curve indefinitely. However, the story seems to contemplate a rather different sort of intrinsic satisfaction. It presents the arts, pursued for their intrinsic satisfactions, as filling or rounding out the sort of life appropriate to a gentleman or a lady. Now, Unless the life appropriate for a gentleman or a lady is taken up by one or more obsessive hobbies, this suggestion cannot be entertained of the liberal arts. For all liberal arts point beyond themselves in the direction of speculative employments. Thus the ancients placed Aristotle's logical treatises among the texts of the organon, the instrument, because, although logic is a science, it has no proper object, no matter, or what amounts to the same thing, its principles are realized only in the systematic presentation of some, any, extra-logical subject matter. Apart from a wholly artificial foreshortening of intellectual vision, logic, like all the liberal arts, is pursued for the sake of knowledge concerning what is, and what is, is extra-logical. A person who found in logic alone a life-fulfilling, intrinsic satisfaction would arouse suspicions of monomania, Someone whose intellectual vision terminated in the liberal arts alone could be satisfied in that vision only by a willed myopia bordering, I would suggest, on psychopathy. This exercise in highlighting philosophical confusions may seem to be unfair treatment of a story which, after all, was presented as part of a description of the evolution of what are called liberal arts. But this text is more than descriptively historical. Its transmutation of philosophical into temporal historical concepts is historicist. Recall, the text presents characterizations, the first and second, as explications of one, uh, the second and third, rather, as explications of the first, the claim that the art sustained free persons. And the text proposes that free persons were, are, those whose lives were or are, in turn, characterized by leisure and its, so to speak, employments. Now, according to the text, Leisure mediates the liberal, that is, the free arts, to free persons. But the leisure in question is evidently an accident of a rather special social milieu. For on the plain sense of the story, free persons are to be understood as aristocrats, or, to use the archaic formula, ladies and gentlemen of leisure, those whose independent means or exalted social status frees them from the burden of working for a living. In a purely negative sense, such persons are free to pursue the arts for their, the arts, presumed intrinsic satisfaction. <clears throat> but the stuff, that is, of aristocratic, but as the stuff, that is, of aristocratic leisure, the liberal arts sustain an aristocratic bias against the vocational in a narrow, that is, livelihood-producing sense. This way of approaching the arts might well account for how a thoroughly medieval formulation like studies appropriate for a Harvard read their liberally educated man, are perfectly useless, could appear, in of all places, the mouth of Charles William Eliot, inventor of the elective system, and could appear there, thoroughly unmedievally, as an emblem of intellectual snobbery. However, the argument is noteworthy for another reason as well. The language symbols of traditional discourse on the liberal arts and liberal learning are all present, and play central roles in the argument. Thus, leisure is a central symbol, as are linked free and useless knowledge. Only the original, philosophical content of the symbols has been evacuated and has been replaced by a set of vaguely historical illusions. It is entirely improbable that ladies, gentlemen, and their vanished lives of privileged leisure can give us any grip at all upon the supremely human life Aristotle, who, let us recall, worked for his living, originally described when he wrote, quote, We work, literally, we are unleisurely, in order to have leisure, or when he argued that leisure is the center about which the fully human life revolves. Aristotle, that is, proposed that work is ordered to leisure, that leisure fulfills working life, that that fulfillment makes for the complete, fully human life. Clearly, by leisure, Aristotle means something rather different 
than the aristocrat's so-called freedom to fill his life with whatever intrinsic satisfactions he might find appropriate, amateur enthusiasms, serious study, or vintage port. Just as clearly, Aristotle articulates no bias, aristocratic or otherwise, against vocational activity. One does not derogate an instrument by pointing out that its utility extends to ends beyond its proximate function, quite the reverse. Moreover, it is very unlikely that Aristotle would see in persons defined by who they are and persons defined by what they do an expression of the opposition between the leisurely and unleisurely life. For Aristotle, the key to what a person is is how he manages to skolen agen, that is, to work, cultivate, or even celebrate leisure. The point here is not to blindly insist upon the authority of Aristotle. It is rather to suggest that the resources of traditional philosophical discourse on leisure, the arts, and liberal learning are quite sufficient to avoid confusions of the sort we have noted above. We need not resign the term liberal arts to the status of a virtual contradiction by claiming falsely that the arts exist for their own sake. Neither need we reduce the central concept of leisure to an accident of a specific kind of social milieu, nor acquiesce in the view that human life is divided against itself into opposed airtight spheres of freedom and obligation or need, leisure and the business of forging a livelihood. The tutelage of the spokesmen of the tradition of Aristotle, Plato, St. Thomas, and their contemporary disciples, above all Joseph Pieper, is perhaps not necessary in order to avoid these pitfalls, but it is certainly sufficient. Above, we argued that the liberal arts, properly so called, are not for their own sake, and that an understanding of the arts, which flatly assigns them an intrinsic value, is therefore incoherent. We implied, then, that the liberal arts are not liberal in themselves, that is, as arts. That, therefore, they are properly called liberal, owing to their relation to something else. The tradition is unambiguous concerning that relation. The liberal arts are called liberal because they are ordered to, and are necessary, though not sufficient for, speculative knowledge, which alone is for its own sake. The tradition thus entertains a distinction, strictly speaking, between liberal arts and a higher liberal knowledge, a distinction that goes unobserved in the story. That distinction proves to be necessary if one wishes to make coherent sense of the concept of liberal education understood as the fruitful pursuit of the liberal arts. Liberal education, we are wont to say, is education for the whole person. In this, namely, that it is education for the whole person, liberal education is distinguished from training, which merely develops some aspects of the person's capacities to promote a specific function or functions. This language comes directly from the tradition. The tradition, however, would not, as we are wont to do, leave the sense attaching to the whole person unspecified. According to the tradition, liberal education addresses the whole person because it addresses the person as kapax universi, that is, in view of the person's capacity to take in the world, the totality of existing things. The concept of human wholeness contained in this formula is, of course, ancient, but it is by no means of merely antiquarian interest. What, in fine, does it mean to hold that the human person is capax universi, capable of the universal? This question can be answered in several complementary, in this case, mutually explicative ways. The human person can step out of an environment into the world. The human person is capable of spiritual knowledge. The human person is radically free, so that no definition of humankind will prove finally adequate. An environment is a strictly delimited field of relations. Therefore, only beings capable of establishing relations, that is, only living beings, can be said to have an environment. By relation or relatedness, we mean the power of ordering oneself or itself to other beings, of establishing a communicative link from within to what is without. The outward field of relations, which constitutes the environment, answers to, and depends upon, an inward dynamic center, a power of the thing to relate itself. In this sense of relatedness, lifeless things are pure externalities. They are next to or above, under pressure from or supported by, and so on. But they are unrelated, in the present sense, 
to the objects of all such propositional connectives. Hence, for example, we are justified in speaking of the Stellar's J's environment to the extent that we have mapped and understood that bird's field of relations, by no means coextensive with the totality of the J's surroundings, relations within which the Stellar's J moves, and in the absence of which we would not understand the J as J. By the same token, the J's environment is its world, that is, a world, but not the world. Just so, every environment amounts to a partial, select slice of the whole, of omnium visibilium et invisibilium, of all things visible and invisible, to which its inhabitants are fully related or adapted, and to which they are completely limited. Each is a world, but none is the world. Now, the characteristic relational dynamic of plants is mechanical, that is, touch or contact, and that of animals is sensual awareness. These modes condition the extent and kind of relations plants and animals are capable, respectively, of forming, and the relations of which plants and animals are capable differ dramatically in kind. An animal's world is not merely a larger version of the plants. By comparison to the plants, it is something radically new because the animal's sensual powers at once subsume and transcend the powers of the plant. <clears throat> if we are agreed that the human person's characteristic relational dynamic is knowing, and that it at once subsumes and transcends the powers of plant and animal alike, we will be moved to ask, what are the kind and extent of relations human beings are capable of forming? The unanimous response of the tradition is, because the human person is capax universi, the field of cognitive relations the person is capable of establishing extends in principle to the world, omnium visibilium et invisibilium. And the tradition agrees similarly in understanding human knowledge, which extends in principle to the whole, as spiritual knowledge. Spirit, then, means in the tradition not only the incorporeal element of human being but a concomitant power of achieving relatedness to all being. Spirit, that is, is not for a world, but for the world, and the world for spirit. For Plato, for Aristotle, for Plotinus and St. Augustine, for St. Thomas, spiritual knowledge supposes a field of relations which exceeds the bounds of any and of every environment, both as regards adaptation to and consequently as regards limitation by any environment. Spirit is thus the radical source of human freedom. Already we can anticipate the response of the tradition to what we have called above the intellectual work ethic. That ethic discounts the realm of human spirit, and with it the springs of human freedom. It is at once Philistine and illiberal, and so it is supremely ironic that it is sold under the label liberal arts. But in order to justify this anticipation, we must attend to, to two further points. In the understanding of the tradition, spirit and world, in the sense of the whole of reality, are reciprocals. Omnia ens est verum. Everything that exists is true, goes the medieval formula, and its complement follows. Being, existence, and truth are interchangeable concepts. That is to say, the tradition maintains not only that spirit is relatedness to all that exists, but also all that exists exists by virtue of its place in the field of relations to spirit. What is the truth of all things? It is that they are known by, related to, absolute spirit, and are knowable by, relatable to, finite spirit. That these are essentially equivalent propositions, namely, things have being, Things exist in the field of relations to spirit. This is the Schwerpunkt, the, the hard point about which turns the history of Western metaphysics. This is hardly the place to undertake an explication, let alone a defense of the rock bottom of the tradition. We are interested rather in one of its immediate implications. The implication at hand can be stated succinctly. The inward power of contracting relations which forms one pole of the dualities, living being, environment, spirit, world, comes in degrees. That is, the greater, more comprehensive the field of relations, the greater, the more self-sufficient, the inward pole of the field. As the more restricted field of relations is answered both by a weaker power and a diminished degree of inwardness at the opposed limit, namely, 
the point at which power is realized in a field of relations that is in principle complete, <clears throat> that is, one that extends to the world, the corresponding pole of inwardness attains to self-completion, to the reflective self or person. Hence the duality, spirit-world, differentiates into subject-object, knower-known, person-world. The spiritual capacity to relate oneself to the world entails an unlimited, self-complete or self-sufficient capacity of living within oneself, of conducting an inner life. To have a world, to be related to the whole of reality, is possible to a self, to a person, to a who, and not to a what. The first point, then, personhood is the expression of spirit, human freedom is grounded in the possibility of an inward life. The second point amounts to a qualification of the first. The human person is spirit, but finite, not pure spirit. That is, in the human person, plant, animal, and spiritual life combine to constitute human being, and in a tradition, this fusion of orders in the human is of the essence of humanity. The co-presence of plant, animal, and spiritual life does not testify to a failure or defect, as if to be human meant to have failed to attain spiritual life in purity. In consequence, the tradition holds that human life transpires at once, vis-à-vis -vis de l'univers, face-to-face with the universe, and within limited fields of relationships which, though vastly deeper and more complex than the environments of plants or animals, are yet environments in the sense of partial, select realities. Like a plant or an animal environment, these human environments are structured principally by need and are thus dominated by human adaptations to the satisfaction of human needs, that is, by intelligent work. In this light, New York City, for example, instantiates a perfectly natural environment. Again, since human being is, albeit complex, one, so human environments may be incorporated in and permeated by that comprehensive field of relationships which is the world. Hence, the tradition rejects any account of human life which would make of the world and environment exclusive or opposed alternatives. It rejects alike, for example, Cartesian angelism and the Baconian view that knowledge consists simply in the domination and manipulation of a recalcitrant nature. The truly human achievement is neither to substitute environment for world, nor to despise the supporting proximity of the sensual and the concrete, of habit and custom, or to discount the myriad other satisfactions provided by the human environment. Rather, the truly human achievement is to preserve and extend one's apprehension of the universal in and behind the concrete, of the world above and beyond one's environment, precisely in the midst of one's engagement with one's environment. Now let us turn to a commonplace opinion. Education for the whole person means education which addresses the person in his spiritual no less than in his practical, in his aesthetic no less than in his discursive capacities. Let us next observe. If we leave the matter here, we must rest with incoherence. Liberal education cannot be for the whole person in the sense that it attends to the totality of his capacities, because it could then not be liberal. Some human capacities are frankly and fortunately instrumental. Physical education, for example, involves neither a liberal art nor a liberal science, although indubitably it is concerned with developing some among the totality of human capacities, and by no means the least significant. Whole, then, cannot signify totality in the formula education for the whole person. It signifies, rather, in a sense analogous to its meaning in a phrase like, the whole issue is this, or here's the whole point. That is, whole means not everything, but what is decisive, that upon which all else turns. Education for the whole person means education for what is decisive to personal wholeness, for what perfects or completes the person as such. Now, the supreme respect which the tradition plays to what we have called spiritual knowledge rests upon the conviction that in and through such knowing, the person is realized in the integrity of his powers. A vegetable cannot vegetate, nor can a brute be brutalized. These things are possible to the human, 
because he is spiritual and because the tone, slack, or taut of his inner life is communicated to every other facet of his being. Again, the opposite of mathematical knowledge is ignorance of mathematics, of geographical knowledge, ignorance of geography, and so on. But the opposite of spiritual knowledge is not ignorance of spirit. It is a spreading intellectual atrophy. Only in the light of a knowledge of some things are others illuminated. There is no such thing as isolated knowledge. Similarly, only polarization, so to speak, by a spiritual center, an inner life developed as relatedness to the whole world, is capable of ordering the manifold of human capacities as a whole, that is, as an integrated human life. Thus, spiritual knowledge has its effects. Still, it remains preeminently knowledge for its own sake. For such knowledge has no use beyond itself. It cannot be applied, that is, turned to the account of purposes social or personal. In this sense, spiritual knowledge is identical with metaphysics, liberal knowledge with useless knowledge. One must reckon, then, with two senses of useless in connection with liberal knowledge and liberal education. Useless or liberal knowledge may be, first, knowledge which is without use absolutely speaking, or it may, second, be knowledge which is in itself ordered only to no particular use. It may be knowledge which need not, but nevertheless may be, applied to a number of intramundane purposes. To illustrate the first side of a distinction, and I'm taking this from Josef Pieper, it's a wonderful distinction, were it supposed politically expedient to place the mathematical acumen of a country in the persons, say, of its leading topologists at the service of some urgent project. No deformation of mathematics as such need follow from the discipline's conscription to ulterior purposes. But suppose that the government in question were to conclude further that it was necessary to mobilize philosophers as well in the service of the common goal. What service could philosophers render? The government's conclusion could translate only to, we need philosophers to expound and defend the ideological justification of our action, which is to say, the government's conclusion would presage the liquidation of philosophy. As to the second side of the distinction, the obverse of the view that some arts or sciences can be applied to some, but are intrinsically ordered to no particular ends or purposes beyond themselves, is that these can be called liberal so far as they either can be pursued for their own sake, that is, philosophically, as, for example, pure mathematics or theoretical physics, or can be ordered to, pursued for the sake of, philosophical speculative knowledge. In the former sense, some of the traditional liberal arts, most clearly the quadrivial arts of arithmetic and geometry, merit the qualifier liberal in their own right. But in the latter sense, all do. For these reasons, the tradition resists simply equating liberal education and liberal arts education. Knowledge is free in the truest sense, as soon as, and insofar as, it is philosophical. Thus John Henry Cardinal Newman. Education in the arts of discourse and measurement, of linguistic and quantitative construction, is genuinely liberal if, and only if, those arts are pursued under the horizon of genuine speculative concerns. Accordingly, the tradition confronts the intellectual work ethic with three categorical denials that in their turn are entailed by three affirmations. The tradition denies that there is no realm of meaning or knowledge which transcends the human person's social vocation because it affirms that spiritual knowledge Knowledge which opens upon the world beyond the workaday human environment is possible, even necessary, to the person. The tradition denies that spiritual knowledge lacks compelling value because it affirms that epistemic value is measured against the full spiritual vocation of the person, to which only knowledge for its own sake fully answers. Obversely, the tradition affirms that epistemic value cannot be translated without residue into utility. Finally, the tradition denies that knowledge for its own sake is in apposite to the human condition because it affirms that finite spirit consists in the power of relatedness to the whole of reality. The greatness of man consists in his being kapax universi. Hence, the tradition affirms categorically that a radically liberal education is possible, but it is possible, the tradition further affirms, only on condition of leisure. <laughs>
in Greek as in Latin. The word for activity of the workaday environment is privative. Ascolia in Latin, negotium. Lack of leisure, lack of leisure. The ancient usage recognized that it is not working life, but a complete life, which requires leisure. A purely working life requires no more than a sufficiency of rest or recreation. And the worker rests, the functionary recreates, in order to return re-energized to work, restored to equality with the demands of his function. A mere respite from work is also inevitably a respite for work, like the wave and trough, work and rest or recreation, belong inseparably, inseparably to a single dynamic. Leisure, as the privatives Ascolia and Negotium also imply, belongs to another order altogether. To re-emphasize what we asserted above, leisure belongs to the life of spirit as its ground or condition. The cultivation of the inner life requires the soil of leisure. Only in leisure can or do expressions of spirit survive. There is, of course, a receptivity which is merely passive, and a silence which consists in simple noiselessness. But there is also a receptivity which can be called waiting upon, as in the sense of the Psalms. I wait for Yahweh, my soul waits for him. I rely on his promise, my soul waits on the Lord, more than a watchman on the coming of the dawn. And there is an attentive silence, which is the precondition for communication and communion. To leisure, the latter receptivity and the latter silence belong. Neither could be described as passive. Consider the situation of a listener to whom a truly absorbing story is being well told. There are many possible attitudes the listener might adopt, a gamut ranging from detached critical appraisal to active intervention, silent second-guessing of the narrative's course, feverish concentration, the better to re-relate the story afterwards, and so on. But among them all, it may seem that only one, one only, is really worthy of a marvelous story genuinely well told. That would be for the listener to compose himself in calm, rapt attention and to open himself to the story as told by putting away all the spurious contributions he might make to its telling and hearing. And it might also seem that this is the most difficult, although not the most effortful attitude he could assume. For in this way, somewhat paradoxically, the listener would be liberating his fundamental powers of hearing, attention, comprehension. He must in any case be accounted intensely engaged, though his engagement involves no effort, as effort is usually understood on his part, and indeed would involve something like a renunciation of effort on his part. We might say he's listening as opposed to working at listening. Such a listener will have touched upon the experience of leisure, for leisure means that the soul's power to answer to the reality of the world is left undisturbed, and we may add, undisturbed by the noisy importunings of the workaday environment. In this sense, leisure conduces to contemplation, and it is a contemplative attitude. Insight is very often the fruit of letting go, of permitting the mind, as we say, to play upon or to dwell upon the objects of its attention. It is a common experience to find one struggles with recalcitrant problems, with a piece of prose or a line of verse that refuses to fall into shape, with an argument that eludes comprehension, resolving themselves after a period of sleep, or when one at length manages to let go the extreme tension of one's powers and let the resolution simply come. In a similar way, the contemplative attitude of leisure which permits the mind to rest in, dwell with things that already engage it effectively, a painting, a flower in bloom, the figure of the God-man in his agony, quickens the mind at its core and arouses at its, as it focuses the fundamental powers of intellectual comprehension. Contemplative leisure enables spiritual recollection. Further, the attitude of leisure is an attitude of celebration, and leisure, in its contemplative character, relies upon and supposes leisure in its celebratory character. To celebrate is the precise, positive contrary of to use. In celebration, there is no question of effecting this or effecting that. 
What is celebrated is affirmed, accepted, received. Therefore also, in celebration, all is meaningful without being functional. And to be engaged in celebration supposes that one is wholly disengaged from any and every ulterior purpose. Celebration is inseparable from leisure because leisure incorporates, instantiates, the deepest of human affirmations, the person's fundamental accord with creation. In leisure, the reality of the creation is a manifest gift of surpassing richness. At the same time, only in the attitude of one who gratefully receives and affirms can the person stand squarely vis-à-vis de l'univers. With some minor alteration, our description of leisure could do as well for a partial, a partial description of the nature of worship. The reason is that the religious feast or festival is at once the historical and sustaining source, the fons et origo, of all leisurely celebration. Celebrate is never used more precisely than in the formula celebrate mass. And there is no better emblem for the heart and meaning of leisure than the invitation and response which structure the preface to the canon. Sursum corda, habemus ad dominum. Just as in antiquity the temple of a sacred grove was space removed from all use and reserved to the estate of the gods, so the religious feast, the day of rest, withdraws a definite period of time from the domain of all purely utilitarian concerns and dedicates that period to divine worship. Moreover, in divine worship, all the characteristics of leisure are realized eminently. To be engaged in worship is to be attentively, effortlessly present to the mystery at the heart of all things. It is to accept, affirm, and embrace humankind's spiritual relationship to and participation in the whole. Moreover, worship invites that contemplative reflection upon both the presence and the participation by which the inner life comes to conscious articulation. Does it follow, then, that in the end, leisure just is worship and worship leisure? In one sense, the answer must be yes. Worship alone can fulfill the human vocation to leisure. There is such a thing as a monastic leisure in which worship specifically pervades and informs one's entire activity. But such a co-realization of worship and leisure would be impossible, were worship not, so to speak, friendly to leisure's many possible manifestations. Historically, the religious feast, first and alone among human institutions, established room in human life for leisure, and the spiritual space thus wrested from the dominion of needful work was and is realized physically in painting and sculpture, architecture and the sacred artifact. So too, the time reserved to divine worship has and does become articulate as liturgy and music, poetry, philosophy, drama, dance. Culture has everywhere derived from the cultus, not only, perhaps not even principally, in the sense that so many of culture's expressions were and remain dedicated celebrations of the cult, unintelligible apart from the cult, but also in the sense that the paradigm and the habit of leisure, the art of leisure, if you will, are achieved historically in and through the celebratio cultus dei, divine worship. When value is equated to utility, to withdraw on principle a space, physical or temporal, entirely from use, can make no sense. There can be no room for leisure as distinct from rest or recreation. In such an environment, nothing can be justified except on the basis of its perceived utility. One must always meet the overriding demand, overriding demand, produce the results. Against the pressure of that demand, what can stand? Ars gratia artis, art for art's sake, must appear because it is a feeble and self-serving slogan when it is raised nakedly contra the claim that art, like everything else, must subserve the greater social good. Indeed, no appeal to humane values, as if these were self-evidently superior, can escape suspicion that it amounts to the special pleading of gold-bricking elites. In an environment given over wholesale to standards of utility, such appeals will be intellectually disabled because they are first morally disabled. They will not so much arouse dissent as inspire incredulity. Their advocates will not be refuted. They will simply fail of credibility. And when at last... The would-be defenders of leisure and its cultural fruits are driven back to the last ditch. They will find it furnished with an altar. On the altar, they will find a sacrifice, because sacrifice is the living heart of worship. And what does sacrifice mean? 
mean? It means a free offering freely given and never anything useful or utilitarian. In fact, it means the very opposite of using or useful. And thus, by means of active participation in the sacrifice of the cultus, a capital wealth is created, which the world of work can never consume, a superabundance of wealth that cannot be calculated and that the functions of the world of trade can never disturb, a real wealth, overflowing and superfluous, neither tied nor limited by end or aim, the holiday, the feast. That is the sphere, both spatial and temporal, in which le uh, leisure unfolds itself and comes to fruition. That's Joseph Pieper from Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And that, my friends, is why divine worship is the sustaining source of leisure, and through leisure, the source, too, of all truly liberal education. If you like that, visit magnusinstitute.org. That's M-A-G-N-U-S institute.org. Like it, share it, give us five stars. We'll do more of it. See you next time.